Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, howdy, WCC. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. As you're turning there, I was just thinking about this this weekend. It feels like spring is coming soon, and I was thinking about how much I enjoy just being outside and how my prayer life, we're going to be talking about prayer and how my prayer life improves so much when I'm riding around on the lawnmower or being outside. So very thank. I'll tell you what, too, I've said this before, I'm very thankful to live in Georgia. Uh, just the, I think sometimes we take for granted just the beauty of of Georgia. There's a reason the most beautiful golf course in the world is in Georgia. So uh, we live in a beautiful place. Um, I think, too, about how just it's a glimpse, I think, of the new earth, the new earth that God is going to give us. All right, Hebrews 4, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus as our high priest. And just as a reminder, the theme of Hebrews is that real faith, saving faith in Jesus is a persevering faith. It's a faith that lasts all the way to the end. So we're encouraged to, to hold fast to Jesus no matter what. And the author here is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. They've put their faith in Jesus, but they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're being tempted to go back to the temple and the sacrificial system and the old covenant priests. And the writer keeps on warning them, you better not return to the old sacrificial system because if you do that, you're turning away from Christ and you're turning away from God himself because Jesus is God. And he says, we looked at it last week, that if you turn away from Jesus, you will not enter into heaven. You will not enter into his God's eternal uh, heavenly rest. All right, last week we looked at how the author uses an Old Testament historical account as a picture of what it looks like to turn back from following God. And something I was thinking about, the, the writer to the Hebrews is, is a lot of times is preaching from the Old Testament, from Psalm 95. And I didn't mention this last week, but there are preachers, there are preachers today who say the Old Testament is irrelevant. We need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And what's funny to me is the writers of the New Testament are preaching about the Old Testament. So if you say you need to get rid of the Old Testament, then you're disagreeing with what even the New Testament writers say. All right, so, so the historical account that the writer to the Hebrews was using from Psalm 95 that we looked at as, as a warning was the account of the people in Israel who came out of Egypt and they were right on the cusp of Canaan. They were just about to go into the promised land after one year, just one year, but they didn't believe God and they turned away. And as a result, they spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. That generation did not go into the land of Canaan. And as we saw last week too, the land of Canaan is an earthly picture of God's heavenly rest. So you enter God's eternal rest. You enter God's heavenly rest by believing his promises, specifically by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him. So now we come to Hebrews 4, and we're going to look at uh, verses 14 to 16 today. So the end of Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, it's a short passage, but it's very important. And what the writer is doing, it's really a transition passage. He's wrapping up this section that began in chapter 3 about the importance of faith in Christ, of listening to the voice of God, of not hardening your hearts. He's concluding that long section. 
And now he's going to begin a long discussion about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, about how Jesus is our great high priest. All right. So this, this section of four, section, uh, verses 14 to 16 is a very important transition, transition in the book of Hebrews. So again, he's wrapping up this exhortation to hold fast to Christ, and he's going to start talking about Jesus being our great high priest. All right. So let's read it. This is Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. We'll read the passage and then I'll walk through it. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Really a wonderful passage, very encouraging passage. So the big idea for this passage that I've taken out is this, because Jesus is our great high priest, we have direct access to the Father in prayer. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we have direct access to the Father in prayer. We're going to talk about that. So let's walk through the passage verse by verse. So verse 14 starts out, by saying, since then we have a great high priest. All right, since then, or your translation may say, therefore. Since then or therefore, what he, whenever you see that, you've heard, you know, if you say therefore, what's it there for? So what is he referring to here? Well, he's referring to all the stuff before, but specifically he's talking about the end of Hebrews 2 and the beginning of Hebrews 3. And in that passage in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 and Hebrews 3, 1, the author first introduces us to Jesus being our high priest. And now he's had this section that he's been talking about exhorting us to hold fast. Now he picks up again in verse 14. He brings us back to talking about Jesus being our high priest. Okay. So Jesus is our great high priest. And I want to spend some time thinking about what that means. Because in our day, honestly, the idea of priests or priesthood is just very foreign to us. About, about the only time we ever say the word priest is usually when we're talking about it like a Roman Catholic priest. So the, this idea of what a priest does and what a priest is, it's really strange to us. So I want us to think about that. I've, I've touched on this before, but again, I want to stress it. A priest is a mediator between God and man. So a priest is a mediator. We could say a go-between, between God and man. There's another mediator between God and man, and that's a prophet. So both prophets and priests are these go-betweens between God and man. And the difference between a prophet and a priest, again, I've talked about this, but really the easiest way I think of it, the difference between a prophet and priest is the direction they face. So if this is God and this is the people, a prophet faces the people and he's, he's a representative of God. So the prophet is a representative of God and he faces the people and he says, thus saith the Lord. Okay, so he's God's representative. What about a priest? Well, like a prophet, a priest is a mediator. He's between God and man, but a priest faces God. He's a representative of the people. He comes before God to offer in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices to God. So the, the priest is a representative of the people. So the priest in the Old Testament would enter the temple where God was found in a special way and the priest would come into the temple facing God as a representative of the people. 
I think this is helpful too, to think about the temple and kind of what's going on. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but inside the temple, really, there were only two rooms. The temple was not a complicated structure in Jerusalem. It really only had two rooms. So when the priest would walk through the door and entered the temple, the same thing was the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the days of Moses was just a big tent, but there were really only two rooms. The priest would enter the tabernacle or the temple and he would be, when you, when you first walked in, when the priest first walked in, he's in this room and this, they called this the holy place. Okay. So he would walk in there and he, they had duties that they performed. He would be in the holy place. And then at the back of the temple, there was the second room and they called that the most holy place or the holy of holies. Okay. And so what we see immediately is that there were lots of barriers between God and the people. There were just lots of barriers. The average Jew would never enter the temple, much less the Holy of Holies. Okay? So we see that that God was separated. It's a key thing to think about. God was separated from the people. Even the priests were separated from God. So let's say I'm a priest. I'm from the tribe of Levi. I'm from a descendant of Aaron. Those were the priests. So if it's my turn to minister in the temple, I could go in the first room in the holy place and I could burn incense offerings and offer sacrifice or whatever they did. But even as a priest, I could not go into that second room, the holy of holies. I was, it was separation from God, just separation, barrier after barrier. I couldn't go in there because in the other room, the, the holy of holies, even the priest, the average priest could not go in there. There was actually only one man who could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. And even the high priest could not just waltz into the Holy of Holies. The high priest could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. So one time during the year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So here's a picture. The Holy of Holies within the temple, the most holy place, It was a place that symbolized God's throne room. We could say it was the inner sanctum, the the holy of holies. It was the place where God in all his holiness, in all his splendor was there. And he was symbolically seated on his throne in the holy of holies. I want to stress this, the, the temple in Jerusalem was just an earthly picture of heavenly realities. God's true throne room is in heaven. It's in the heavens. But the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, it was just an earthly picture of God's throne room. So, and in the Holy of Holies, if you walked in there, there wasn't much in there. Uh, really, there, there weren't any chairs in there. So the high priest could not sit down. There weren't any chairs in the, in the first part either, in the holy place. There weren't chairs. The priests were not permitted to sit down. They were in there to do their work, and then they got out. So the, the high priest, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, he never sat down. He was, he was in the Holy of Holies once a year. His job was to offer sacrifice for sin. He would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and then he got out of there. So really, the Holy of Holies, this is hard for us to think about because we, we sort of have sort of a casual idea about God's holiness. But to them, the Holy of Holies was really a frightening place. It was a scary place because you might get yourself killed in there. That happened, actually. And here's why it was scary. It's real simple. Because God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are not. We are sinful and God cannot have sin in his presence. That's why there were all these barriers between God and the people. 
Because if God is around sinful people, then his judgment would just consume them. So the Holy of Holies was really a frightening place. This is important too. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, as I said, you wouldn't have seen much. It wasn't there. Basically, you would have seen this fancy wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And I think we may have a picture of that. The Ark of the Covenant was just this wooden box covered with gold. Okay, that's about the only thing you would see in the Holy of Holies. And on top of the Ark, you can see there were these two angels. They were covered with gold, these carvings, and they had their, their wings outstretched above the box, above the Ark. So this was a picture of the throne of God. So the picture is God was invisibly seated above the ark. His holy presence was, was right above the ark of the covenant, above the angel's wings. It was the, they called it the mercy seat. Now here's why this matters. Because God is pictured as being on his throne. He's invisible above the ark. And one of the things inside the ark, inside that box, one of the things in there was the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments written on stone, God's law. So think about the picture from God's perspective. He's on his throne above the Ark of the Covenant, above those angels' wings, and he's looking down, and what does he see in the box? He sees the Ten Commandments. He sees his law, right? You shall have no other gods. Warnings against adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't, co- don't, don't covet. All these things. Warnings against idolatry. All the Ten Commandments, God sees these from his throne. God's looking at his law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then, lo and behold, once a year, the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. So think about it. God sees his law, and now standing before him as the high priest, a lawbreaker, (laughs) a sinner. And that high priest is a representative of the people who are lawbreakers. You see the picture? The, the, The priest is a representative and he's representing the people of Israel who are sinning all the time. So God looks at his law and now he sees this lawbreaker in front of him. And this lawbreaker represents all the people of Israel. And remember, God can't even allow sin in his presence. So the Holy of Holies was really a frightening place because God is holy. His law is holy and we are not. And when the high priest finished his job and he walked outside, he was like, Whew, made it, made it out alive. Just barely made it, right? Because it was, it was a frightening thing. Now, remember, again, the temple in Jerusalem was just an earthly picture of God's throne. There's a place in heaven where God's true throne is. God's real throne is in the heavens. Some, maybe it's, I assume it's in a different dimension, but it's somewhere in the heavens, outside of, of where we are. That's the actual holy of holies, the heavenly holy of holies. And God's throne room in heaven is the seat of power for the entire universe. It is the seat of power for everything. God is on his throne ruling over everything. All right, now let's look back at Hebrews 4.14. Now think about what we've just talked about and what the, what the writer says in Hebrews 4.14. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice a few things. One, Jesus is not just a priest. Jesus is not just a high priest. There were lots of high priests. The high priest would serve for a time and then they would die or leave or whatever and another one would be appointed. So it was just high priest after high priest, one after another. But Jesus isn't just another high priest. No, he's the great high priest. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than all the other high priests because as we've talked about, he's God, he's Messiah. He's God in the flesh. 
He's the son of God. And that's what it says in the passage. He's the son of God. He's our great high priest. He's our great mediator. Jesus is our great representative. He represents us to the father on our behalf. He's our great high priest. Also notice this. It says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. This is a shorthand way of saying that Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. And now he has ascended. He's ascended to the heavenly throne room of the father. He's passed through the heavens. He went through the heavens into the true throne room of God in heaven. So he passed through the heavens. He went into the throne room of God the Father, into the heavenly holy of holies, into the real holy of holies. He's our great high priest. And he represents us before the Father in the real holy of holies. So what that means is if you've put your faith in Jesus, he represents you. Just like when the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies, he represented the people of Israel. Jesus walks into the true Holy of Holies and he represents us, his people, in the throne room of heaven. He is our great high priest. He's our representative. He's our leader. And because of that, that's what the writer says, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. In other words, let's continue to confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's cling to faith in him and confess that he's our Lord. He's our leader. He's our savior. He's the son of God. That's what it means to hold fast our confession. We confess our faith in him. We're not ashamed of Jesus. We want other people to hear about Jesus. We want to tell others about Jesus. We want to invite folks to church so that they can hear about Jesus. We profess our faith in him. We confess our faith in him. He's the son of God. So that's the confession. Okay, so we're going to hold fast to that confession. Then we come to Hebrews 4.15. And now the writer's going to talk more about what kind of high priest, great high priest Jesus is. Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the writer's talking about Jesus' priesthood, and, and he's saying that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's not the kind of high priest we have. There may be priests, representatives who don't understand us. Maybe they were raised in a wealthy and powerful family. Most of the high priests were, they were raised in wealthy and powerful families. Maybe they don't understand us. Maybe they don't understand our situation. Maybe they've never dealt with suffering. These high priests, they probably don't understand us. They can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but not Jesus. That's what he's saying, not Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, why is that? Because he was made human and he endured tremendous suffering. As it says back in Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus is the son of God. He left the palaces of heaven and became a man. He took on flesh. He lived in the dusty, nothing town of Nazareth. His parents were poor. His parents were peasants. He lived as a real human. He suffered as a real person. He was betrayed. He was slandered. And he died a gruesome death. He suffered, and as a result, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands what we go through because he suffered. Also, it says this, he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. 
It doesn't mean he's been tempted with the exact same thing that you've been tempted with, but he experienced every category of temptation. Jesus experienced temptation. It was real temptation. He was tempted. He suffered. That's what that means. He endured hardship and heartache and betrayal and embarrassment. He was tempted and suffered. But the writer makes it clear that Jesus was without sin. Jesus had no sin. He never sinned. He endured the temptation. Our corporate reading was from Luke 4 when the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He was, Satan wanted to make Jesus doubt. So he said, remember what it said, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you're really the son of God, if that's true, maybe it's not. That's what Satan is, is telling Jesus. Maybe it's not true. Maybe you're really not the son of God. So why don't you do this and see? The devil told Jesus the same thing. He said, throw yourself off the temple. He took him up on top of the temple. Remember reading that? Took him up on top and said, throw yourself down because the Bible said, Satan would quote the Bible, and he said, the Bible says that these angels will save you. They won't let your foot even touch the ground. So Jesus, just jump off the temple, and then if you're the son of God, these angels will save you. So that will prove that what God said was true, that you really are the Messiah. That'll prove it. So put God to the test by jumping off the temple. And Jesus said, quotes from Deuteronomy. Every quote, interestingly enough, is from Deuteronomy. Jesus knew the word of God. He studied it, just like we should. And Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord to the test. The devil said this, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world right now. Right now, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to suffer. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world right now. You don't need to endure the horrific suffering of crucifixion. You see the temptation? There's a real temptation for Jesus in his humanity. You don't need to endure this gruesome suffering. You don't need to do that. I'll give it to you all right now. Just worship me. Just worship me and it'll be yours. And Jesus endured that and he said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In his humanity, Jesus was tempted, but he didn't give in. He never gave in. He was tempted in many other ways. He was tempted to lust after women, but he never did. He was tempted to covet, but he never did. He was tempted to gossip and lie, but he never did. He was tempted to doubt his father, but he never did. He never crossed the line into sin. We know when we've crossed that line into sin. We know when we do it. And Jesus never crossed that line. Now, we may say this, and I've thought this to myself too. Well, yeah, Jesus didn't sin at all. That was easy for him because he was God, right? I mean, honestly, don't we have that thought? Jesus was God, so it was pretty easy for him not to sin. But see, Jesus endured these trials and temptations. We've talked about this in Hebrews. In his humanity, in his humanity, and in his humanity while on earth, He did not access his divine power. Yet even in his humanity, in the limitations of being a real man, he endured temptation and he never gave in to sin. I'm going to give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. And by the way, C.S. Lewis, some of his theology is terrible, (laughs) honestly, just keeping it real. But when he he, he had a gift, when he understood something and he explained it, it was often very effective. And this is the quote. I know it's a long quote. But I want you to think about it because I think it's so good. Lewis said this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, 
you find out the strength of the German army or the Russian army, right? By fighting against it, not by giving in. If you just give up immediately, you don't know the full strength of the army. You know the full strength by fighting. That's how you know it. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by just laying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus knows the full power of sin. He knows the full power of temptation because he didn't give in after five minutes. He didn't give in after five hours. He didn't give in after five years. He endured temptation his whole life. He endured the full power of sin and temptation his whole life, but not once, not once did he ever give in to sin. Never did he, he never did yield to temptation. He knows temptation better than you do because he's never given into it. He's experienced the full power of temptation. He's known temptation to the max and he's endured it. So listen, Jesus, what that means is Jesus knows what we're going through and he's able to sympathize with our weakness. He understands no matter what you're going through, no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how heartbreaking how heartbroken you are, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how tired you are, whatever your situation is, Jesus understands. He knows what you're going through. He's endured the full power of temptation. He's been there and he cares. He cares about you. And that brings us to verse 16. As I said, the big idea from this passage is because Jesus is our great high priest, he's our representative we have direct access to the Father in prayer. And that's what this is talking about, in prayer. When we pray, our words go into the heavenly throne room of God. Can you believe that? Isn't that hard to believe? But it's true. When we pray as God's children, our voices are heard in the holy of holies in heaven. And that's what the writer is encouraging us to do in Hebrews 4.16, to pray. He says, let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to think back about the temple in Jerusalem and the throne of God and the Holy of Holies. Okay? Think again about the high priest. There's this regular guy in Jerusalem going into the Holy of Holies. God is symbolically on his throne. Remember, above the angels, above the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ten Commandments. Again, God looks at his law. He looks at the sinful priest standing before him. The priest is standing before the presence of God, the unveiled holiness of God. And the law of God is right there. So if you're doing that, think about the terror of that. Now this goes along. If you look back at the verses right before what we're looking at in Hebrews 4, look at verses 12 and 13. We briefly talked about this last week. The writer's talking about the word of God, the law of God. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
This is really like a picture of us walking into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the holiness of God. And he sees everything. He knows everything. And his law pierces us. It, it cuts us to the quick. We know we don't obey his law perfectly. In our inner heart, we know we don't obey God's law. We know we're unclean. And we're standing before a holy God. Later on in Hebrews, it says God is said to be a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. God is holy and we are not. Now, now imagine all this as you're walking into the Holy of Holies. Okay? You're thinking about this in the presence of his unveiled holiness. You feel that tension? You feel that? When this happens, when we realize our sin... We understand we're in the presence of a holy God. When this happens, what is our tendency? Honestly, what is your tendency in that moment? You know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to run and hide. That's what we want to do. Remember Adam and Eve when they sinned? They ran from God. They hid because they knew they had sin in them and they knew that God is holy. Our tendency is to run from God. Oftentimes the deceitfulness of our sin convinces us to run from God. So we don't pray. We skip church. We realize our sinfulness and God's holiness. We have a tendency to run from the Lord. But notice this, right after the writer gives us these scary warnings in verses 12 and 13 about the word of God, about the law of God, and how God sees the depths of our hearts, and how we can't hide from God, that's what that is about. Right after this scary warning, which makes us want to run from God, what does the writer say? Look again, verse 16. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer's saying this, in verse 16, we're almost done with the sermon. He's saying this, we don't need to run and hide from God. We don't need to avoid God. No, we're invited to come into his presence, to draw near to the Lord, draw near to his throne in prayer, Day or night, we don't need to fear God's condemnation and judgment because Jesus, as our great high priest, has guaranteed that we're forgiven. He has offered himself as the sacrifice. He's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice. He offers his own life as the sacrifice. And what he did on the cross was he received in himself the judgment that should have come to you and me. Jesus drained it all. He took it all. All the judgment has now fallen on Jesus. There's no more judgment hanging over the heads of God's people. Our great high priest has already done all this for us. So what that means is we can come into God's presence without fear because we know we're loved by the Father. And in the Old Testament, there were, as I said, there were all these barriers between God and the people. But now, because Jesus is our great high priest, he has made a way for us to God. Our great high priest ripped down the veil, separating us from the throne of God. That veil is now gone. That barrier is now gone. There's nothing separating us from the love of God. There's nothing separating us from access to the Father's throne room. In other words, as I said, we have direct access to the Father in prayer because Jesus is our great high priest. Because to the believer, you know what? God is not a consuming fire. He's not a consuming fire to the believer. He's not a God of judgment to the believer because we're his children. We're his kids. 
He's our dad, and he wants his kids to come in and talk to him. We have direct access to the Father in prayer, and he invites us. What a privilege. He invites us to come and talk to him. Topher mentioned this yesterday during the men's prayer time. Who's the only person who has freedom to enter into the king's bedchamber in the middle of the night and ask for a drink of water? Who has the right to do that? There's only one person, the child of the king. The king's son or the king's daughter is welcome to go into the king's bedchamber in the middle of the night and ask for a drink of water because the king is his dad. When my kids need my help, I want them to come to me anytime, and it doesn't matter. Let's say I'm in an important meeting, but if my kids need help, they better come to me, and I'm going to drop everything right then for my kids. Doesn't matter if, if I'm in something important. Doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. Because they're my kids, I want them to come to me with confidence, with boldness. I want them always to come to me. It's the same with God. We have direct access to God. We don't, we don't need an earthly priest, right? We don't need an earthly mediator between us and God because we already have Jesus, our great high priest. And that means we have access to God. And we get to call him our father, our dad. And he invites us, invites us to come and talk to him. To pull up a chair and talk to our dad. We do that in prayer. And he hears us in the holy of holies in heaven. He wants us to come to us anytime, continuously. Actually, you can see that in verse 16. We probably can't see it with the verb that we have. But the verb form is like this. It's like, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace over and over again. Over and over again. That's what the verb is. Our drawing, drawing near to him never stops. It's continuous. Over and over again. And this continuous access to God our Father is available because Jesus, our great high priest, our sympathetic, caring high priest, our understanding high priest, has made a way for us to God. He tore down the barriers separating us from the Father. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, do that now. Turn away from self. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Give up the controls of your life to him, to Christ, I would encourage you just as a practical thing, just read like the Gospel of John. Find some good Christian music to, to listen to. Come and talk to me if you need some. Spend time just praying, just in his presence. You don't have to do it for hours a day, but just start doing that and hear him speak to you and get to know him and pray to him. Come to his throne of grace. He welcomes you. Notice this too. As I said, it's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of condemnation. It's a throne of grace. And when we come to the Lord, as it says here, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in our time of need. It says we receive mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is this, is God not giving us what we deserve, not giving us the punishment, the judgment that we deserve. He withholds that. That's mercy. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He withholds that. He's not going to condemn, condemn us. He gives us mercy. And he gives us grace. We receive grace. Grace is God giving us some good, some favor that we don't deserve. God gives us gifts, blessings that we don't deserve. He gives us tenderness, compassion, goodness that we don't deserve. That's the grace our Father gives us. So here, God invites his children, his kids, to come to his throne of grace in prayer. He invites us to come to him in our time of need. When we fail, 
When we fail again, when we give into that same temptation again for the millionth time, when we do the same stupid thing again, maybe you think I've got to handle this myself. I've got to do this myself. Or maybe you just want to hide from God. Maybe you just want to stay in bed on Sunday. Maybe you just want to withdraw from the people of God. Or maybe we think, God, I don't want to bother you again with this. I'm so embarrassed. I'm doing the same stupid thing again. No, no. He tells us to draw near to the Lord. Draw near to your father in prayer. Draw near to the throne of grace continuously over and over again. That's what he tells us to do. And he tells us to do that incredibly with confidence, with boldness. Our dad wants us to come into his holy presence because he's a tender father and he gives us help in our time of need. No matter what your need is, struggling against sin, struggling against failure, disappointment, sadness, heartbreak. We may think this, anybody ever thought this or am I the only one? I'm such an idiot. (laughs) I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. I'm not even going to bother God with this. He must be tired of hearing this. He must be sick of this by now. No, no, don't think those thoughts. Don't think those thoughts and stay away. Christ invites us to come to the throne of grace because he's made a way for us as our great high priest. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we have direct access to the Father in prayer. So brothers and sisters, go to your Father in prayer over and over again, every day. Pray without ceasing. Yes, we fail over and over again. Yes, we stumble over and over again in our sin and our brokenness and our stupidity. We fail. But our God is a compassionate Father and he wants us to come to him over and over again. Jesus has made a way for us into the Holy of Holies. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I'm just, we're so thankful that you are a God of, of grace and mercy. Jesus, thank you for being our great high priest. Thank you that you have made a way, that we have direct access into the heavenly holy of holies. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Thank you for being our sympathetic and understanding and caring high priest, our representative. Thank you that we have no condemnation hanging over us now because you've taken all the judgment, all the sin away from us. And therefore, in the Father's sight, your people have no sin in God's sight. All we have is your goodness and righteousness. So we praise you and love you. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, for myself and everybody in here, everybody listening, that we would be people who really would be people of prayer, who really understand that you really do hear us, that our prayers don't just bounce off the ceiling. We're not just talking into a a void, a nothingness. You really hear us and you care. Help us to remember that, Lord. We praise you and love you. Thank you for your goodness toward us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.